You are listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. To learn more about Central Sanford, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. We're going to say this together. Jesus says, pray then like this, all together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. We live in a nation filled with people that are struggling with debt. Maybe, maybe you have high debt in your life. Uh, I did some research this morning that found that Americans collectively have $13.86 trillion in consumer debt. That's found in mortgages, auto loans, credit cards, and student loans, and medical bills. The average credit card debt in America is around 13,000, uh, uh, not 13,000, I'm so sorry, is uh, the average credit card debt in Florida, because that's where we live, is $8,444. That's 12th nationally. So the average Floridian has over $8,000 in credit card debt. The average car payment in Florida for a new car is around $554 a month in the state of Florida. The overall average debt of most Americans aged 35 to 55 is around $135,000. 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. The average college graduate has $40,000 in student loans. 56 million adults are struggling to pay medical bills, and medical debt is the number one reason Americans file for bankruptcy. Now, some of you this morning, you say, Pastor, thank you for depressing me. (laughs) Psychologists say that debt brings about depression, high anxiety, fear, shame, guilt, and embarrassment. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about debt. But not necessarily money. We're going to be talking about a different kind of debt. A debt of sin. And this morning we're going to talk about how we can get rid of it. Now, the prayer that we just prayed is the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you're new to church and this is the first time you've heard that. Or maybe many of you grew up in church and you've heard this and said this many times. And what we have learned, if you've been with us these past few weeks, is that this is a very God-centered prayer. And, and what, what we want from this is, is we want to understand what does Jesus want to teach us from it, not just to repeat some sort of word. So I think that when you and I have the right perspective in our prayer life, we will pray the right kind of prayer. So every phrase in the Lord's Prayer is filled with deep biblical truths but it also assumes deep biblical knowledge. And so for some of us in the room, we've never really fully comprehended the power of this prayer because we don't really understand the biblical knowledge behind it. So the the series is all about walking through phrase upon phrase and seeing what does the wealth of Scripture teach us about these phrases. So this morning, the phrase that we're looking at is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And and this points us, this phrase points us to the fundamental need that we have for a right relationship with God. That's your greatest need this morning, is a right relationship with God. So to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we are acknowledging the debt that we owe to God and we are asking 
him to forgive us our debt and to empower us to forgive others. So let's just look through that phrase real quickly. Number one, the debt that we owe, the debt that we owe. He says here we are to say, forgive us our debts. Now, some of you are used to, to translations that say, forgive us our trespasses. I think that's found in the King James Version. It's, it's synonymous with trespasses. It's synonymous with the word sin. But, but the Greek word is specifically the word debt. That's the reason why it's translated in that translation of the ESV is because specifically this word is used by Jesus. And the reason why the word debt is used rather than sin or trespasses is because this word that Jesus is using is very specific. It speaks about the seriousness of the offense. Now, when we think of the word debt, we don't get all uh, upset. For some of us, it's an inevitable evil. For some of us, it's a, a savvy business plan. And for others, it's an annoyance. But in Jesus' day, it, is a, it was a punishable prison sentence for many who had debt but could not repay. So in, in Jesus' day, there was something called a, a debtor's prison. And most of the Roman prisons in, in Jesus' day were filled with debtors. They weren't necessarily filled with criminals who murdered or stole because most of those criminals were either, A, executed, crucified, or forced into some sort of slavery. So the most people that were in the prisons of this day were very petty thieves, or they were debtors. And so the people who, could, who had a debt but could not repay that debt were, was put in prison until they paid the debt that was owed. Now, that seems kind of counterintuitive. If you owe a lot of money, and they put you in jail, how are you going to pay for it, right? I mean, how are you going to do that if you don't have the money to pay? So what they did, the system was set up to pressure the family to find money to pay to get their loved one out of prison. So, so in this day, a lot of these loved ones w- would suffer, and, and, and some of them would even die in debtor's prison because the family could never raise the money to support them, or the family would have to come together to get the person out of hock. So in Jesus' day, this whole idea of debt was a matter of life and a matter of death. So the same is, is true in our day as well in this thought. In Jesus' day... To forgive a debt was, a, was an unusual act of extravagant mercy. You know, most banks don't forgive debt. How many of you have, have had, and you don't have to raise your hand, although we're all going to be envious if you do, how many of you have just had your bank just call you up and say, you know that loan that you have on that car? We've forgiven that. Or how many of you have had your mortgage company just call you up, you know what, or send you a letter and say, you know what, you have been paying so uh, frequently and on time, we've just decided that that $200,000 you owe, it's gone, you're debt free. After you passed out with a stroke, it wouldn't happen. So in our day, the only way you get out of debt is you A, pay it off, or you file bankruptcy. If you do not pay your debt you will experience the wrath of the law. But if your debt is paid, then you are reconciled. But if it's not paid, then you are in debt. Now, this is the terminology, the phrase, forgive us our debt. So here in Jesus' day, the minds of the people were like, ooh, debt. But here we're to ask God to forgive us our debt. He doesn't say forgive us our mistakes. He doesn't say forgive us where we do an uh uh-oh. Forgive us our debts, showing us the very seriousness of the offense. And what this word debt means, or what this word debt does, is it points us to the urgent spiritual need that we have. You and I, all of us, have a debt to God 
And the reason we have a debt to God is because we have failed to give Him the obedience that He deserves and that He is due. You say, how has He owed any of my obedience? Well, He created you. He gave you life. He gave you breath. And you know what He asks? The one who created you? He asks that you love Him supremely. That you love Him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. And I don't know about you, but all of us in this room hopelessly fall short of loving God the way He deserves to be loved. The Bible says that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because we're sinners, and you say, well, what is sin? Well, sin is doing the exact opposite of what God tells us to do. It's, it's trying to go our way rather than His way. It's going from His design and trying to live life independent from God. And because we are sinners, because we are not loving God the way that God deserves We deserve the wrath of God for eternity. But see, the very fact that you are not in hell this very moment, that you are alive, at the very least shows that there is a debt that you owe. See, our deepest need, the deepest need that you have in your life is a right relationship with God. The deepest need that you have is for your debt to be forgiven. See, sin is a debt. Let's think about it in normal terms. When someone wrongs you, whether it's monetarily or or personally, emotionally, when someone wrongs you, a debt is established. And and that debt must be paid by somebody. So if you, uh, as soon as you leave church this morning and you go to eat at your place of of eating, and and let's say that while while you're out driving, someone just bams into your car and just, just tears up the front. Well, when they've done that, that person owes you, right? They broke it. And because they broke it, they're to buy it. Now, if they don't, then you've got a bigger problem. And that's when you call Morgan & Morgan. <laughs> or Dan Newland. Or one of these other people. Now, it doesn't matter if the person that ran into you did it on accident or they did it on purpose. The very fact that they hit you incurred a debt. They are in your debt, and if they don't pay the debt, if they don't make things right, then they are in your debt, and you can sue them for damages. So you and I have sinned against God. You and I have done what we shouldn't have done, and in doing so, we have have incurred a debt. And here's the issue with that debt, that you and I can never, ever on our own Pay that debt off. See, the debt that we owe God can never be repaid by us because we have offended an infinitely holy God. And when you offend an infinitely holy God, that offense requires an infinite debt. And an infinite debt that is not paid requires an infinite punishment. And just one offense against an infinite God incurs an infinite debt. And so because you and I sin not just once, but every day, all day long, we have incurred such an, a ginormous infinite debt that even the American national debt pales in comparison to the debt that we owe God. And that's why we walk around with guilt and shame. Guilt is feeling bad for what you've done. Shame is feeling bad for who you are. And here is this 
this guilt that we owe, this debt, this debt that we owe to God, and we cannot repay it. Now, we try to repay it through religion. We try to pay it through, through being a good person. We, we think that if we can get enough good karma, it will outweigh all the sin that we've done, but yet we can never repay what he has, what we have done against him. We have a debt that we owe, but we not only see that we have a debt that we owe, but there's a forgiveness here, the forgiveness that we ask for. He says, forgive us our debts. Now, here's the question. When we ask God to forgive us, what are we saying? What are we asking for? Now, let's go back to just just on the surface what it means to forgive a debt. To forgive a debt means that you absorb the cost and bear the payment yourself. So if, 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 if someone comes up to you and borrows $500 and they can't pay it, they come to you and they say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm, I can't repay you. Will you forgive me that debt that I owe you? If you say yes, I forgive you $500, how much did it cost you? Some of you take your shoes off. Some of you folks from Chuliota. If someone borrows 500 and they don't repay 500 and you forgive them 500, you are going to have to pay yourself $500. Every time you pay, or every time you forgive, you pay. See, forgiveness is never, ever free, it always costs. See, when you and I come to God for forgiveness, what are we asking Him to do? We are asking Him to absorb the cost Himself. Since our debt against God is infinite, it requires an infinite payment. So the only way that God could forgive us was to bear the payment Himself. So God the Father sent God the Son to take the punishment to pay off the debt that we've incurred. Does that make sense? I'm intentionally doing this kind of repetitively because I think sometimes we use the word forgiveness, we use the word uh, the cross and the gospel, and we don't really understand and comprehend what it's all about. So what I'm saying is this, is that when we ask God to forgive us, we're saying, God, we want you to pay the debt that we started. We want you to absorb yourself the cost of our sins. And so the only way that could happen is that God had to pay the penalty because he can't, he can't just say, well, I forgive you. It always costs. Forgiveness is not tolerance. Forgiveness is paying and forgiving. So when we even ask God to forgive us, Al Mohler puts it this way. He says that the Lord's Prayer is a gospel prayer. And we can only say these words, forgive us our sins to God standing in the finished atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way we could ever say it. See, and here's some great news. Y'all want some good news this morning? I'm tired of bad news. I'm tired of coronavirus. I'm tired of this political baloney. I'm tired of people running people down and murders and all kinds of craziness. I've got some good news this morning, and that is is that God can forgive and he wants to forgive. See, God has more forgiveness and mercy in him than we have sin and evil in us. And you and I have the ability to be forgiven because God is a God of forgiveness. So you and I can have the audacity 
Every day to approach God and ask him to forgive us. I mean, that would be like you having the audacity to call your mortgage lender tomorrow and say, hey, I want you to forgive me of my house debt. And after they're like, what? You say, yes, forgive me of my house debt. And they're going to say, are you dumb or just plain stupid? We're not in the business of giving and forgiving debt. We're in the business of taking your money. <laughs> but yet I want you to understand that God is determined to forgive. See, the gospel is that God demands a full penalty for our sins. And the gospel is that God provides it through self-substitution. Jesusly, Jesus perfectly and obediently accomplished whatever it took for you to be forgiven. See, Jesus met the righteous and justice that your sin deserves. The righteousness and justice that your sin deserves. St. Corinthians puts it this way. St. Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The Bible says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin. Jesus didn't die for his sin. He died for your sin. So that in this great exchange, Jesus takes your sin and you get his righteousness. See, the problem that we have, I think, in American Christianity is that we tend to assume forgiveness. We tend to expect it. We tend to even feel entitled to it. And so because we assume it and and we expect it and we feel entitled to it, we just take it for granted. Please hear me this morning. We are not entitled or deserving of God's forgiveness. We're just not. And so I want to just share with you this morning, you and I should never get over the beautiful truth of God's forgiveness. We should never get over it. Because forgiveness is the only way that we can stand in the presence of God without being destroyed. Forgiveness is not earned Forgiveness is given. And this should humble us and it should destroy our pride because you and I have nothing to bring to the table. So we have a debt that we can never repay for all eternity. And when we ask him to forgive us, we're asking God to absorb the debt that he doesn't owe. But praise God, he's willing to pay. But here's the question. How do we ask for it? How do we ask for it? See, the only way that your debt can ever be forgiven by God is you have to repent. Now, that's a big kind of churchy word. Maybe some of you don't like to hear that word, repent. But I want you to understand that there is no true forgiveness of sin without true repentance of sin. To repent means that you acknowledge your sin and you turn from it. Tim Keller says it this way. He says that repentance only begins when blame shifting and self-pity end. So let's walk through that. Blame shifting. Many of us, when we sin or do something wrong, we want to justify our actions and blame them on somebody else. I didn't mean to do it. Or they made me do it. And so we live in denial of the fact that what we did was actually evil and what we did was actually wrong. And because you and I tend to believe we're not as evil as other people are. We're not as bad as someone thinks that we are. And so here's what I found about blame shifting. Blame shifting may make you feel good about yourself, but it will never change you. 
So I want to show you this morning that if you want to have real true forgiveness from God, it doesn't just say that you say some Mickey Mouse prayer, forgive me and move about your day, or God, forgive me for what I may have done. What, what, what real repentance is, is it stop playing the victim. It stopped making excuses. You know, this, this, uh, this Monday and Tuesday, I was in Sunday, I was in, in Clearwater for kind of a, some meetings with some pastors in our state. And, and, and I, was at, I was pulling in where I was staying. Is, it had a garage. And, and to get into where I was going, it was a really tight kind of turn in. And I've got this truck. And, and so I was trying to, to just come in. And, and what happened was, and I hate to say this, is that I, I turned in. And it was a tight turn in, and, and I, I thought I made it. But for some reason, the back of my truck decided to pop out. And so now I have a racing stripe on my car where it hit the side of the garage. And I walked out. And I saw this racing stripe, because it is Daytona 500 weekend. And... And I was like, who can I get to sponsor me? <laughs> and I walked out, and the guy that was next to me, and he said, well, you did it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and at that moment, I could have just shifted blame. I said, well, you know, if you would have parked, because this was a two-car garage, I said, if, you know, I could have said, well, you know, if you would have parked a little bit further over, if it wasn't so tight... If it, you know, I wouldn't have hit it. I could have said that, but you know what? I looked at him and I said, I'm an idiot. I wasn't patient. I was not very careful. I was just trying to whiz in there. And so what I did is I called the owner because the garage did way more damage to my truck than I did to the garage. But yet there was a little bitty paint chips and so... I called the owner and I said, hey, I'm so sorry I did this and, and I'm sorry that I did that. And I said, I will do whatever it takes to make it right. And here I am thinking, good Lord, not only do I have a racing stripe, but we're staying in a very nice place and this person is going to make me pay like $10,000 to fix this thing. And he says, um, he says, oh, don't worry about it. I've got touch-up paint. I'll take care of it. And I said, praise the Lord. <laughs> but it would have been really easy for me to shift blame, right? You know, what a lot of us don't want to do when we, when we do something dumb is admit that we're the dummy. We want to blame everybody else. Well, if it wasn't for them or if it wasn't for that or they're the problem. No, listen, what we have to understand is that our biggest enemy is us. And we just got to own up to it. So if you want to see real forgiveness, if you want to see real change in your life, you've got to stop shifting the blame. And the second thing is you've got to stop having self-pity. You know what I found a lot of people, when they come to God and they repent, is often they repent, repent, is because they feel bad about the circumstances or the consequences of their sin. But they have no concern over how that sin offended a holy God. They care way more about how their sin's affecting them than how it's affecting God. And in and, and 2 Corinthians, Paul kind of talks about this. I don't have time to flesh everything out, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he talks to the church of Corinth, and he says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So he says, there's a real grief, a real sorrow for sin that leads you to change. 
But he says there's a different kind of sorrow, a worldly grief, that produces death. There's a worldly sorrow. And some of you, maybe you've sinned against God, you've done bad, and you've got this worldly sorrow, and it's a life of regret, remorse, or you just feel sorry for yourself. You know what I found? And this is in my own life, that many of us worry more about what the sin does to us and less about what it does to other people, and especially what it does to God. See, what we do is, you know, it's, I'm sorry I got caught. Woe is me. Or, or it's this thought, you know, I will do or say whatever I have to do or say to get less consequences for my actions. It's a sorrow, a self-pity that is driven primarily out of self-interest. It's kind of like this. Husband cheats on his wife. She finds out. She threatens to leave him, to take the kids, to take everything, to take half of everything. And all of a sudden, he gets religious. And he repents, and he feels horrible for what he did. And and, and the reason he feels bad is because in this moment, flashing before his eyes, he sees, I could lose it all. I could lose my family. I could lose my life as I knew it. And so he, he comes to his wife, and he says he's sorry, and he says, Honey, I will never do it again. I will never do it. Listen, don't leave me. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start doing right. So Augustus, what he does, he starts going to church. And he starts to show that he's a changed man. But inside, he's not changed. He's just feeling sorry for himself. Look at what all I'm having to do to make this woman not leave me. I'm having to go to church. I'm having to do this. But the only reason that he does it is because he does not want to lose what he had. And so what happens? Eventually, he goes right back to it. Reformation without transformation leads to greater degradation. That unless you repent genuinely without blaming other people or without just shift or without self-pity, you'll never repent. Because neither blame shifting nor self-pity will ever bring about true repentance. Here's what does, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess here means to say the same thing about your sin that God does. When you confess to God, you're not telling him something he didn't already know. When you say to God, God, I have lusted in my heart. I have had greed in my heart. God, I did this. I did that. He already knows what you've done. It's just you acknowledging that you did it and that you've got no one to blame but yourself. To confess is to get specific and to identify what you've done. It may start as general, but it always leads to specific as the Spirit recalls those offenses. When you ask God to forgive you of your debts, if you just say it generally without any specifics and you just kind of go about your day, I don't really know if you got forgiveness or not, but here's what I do know. That as you genuinely spend time with God in prayer, not just regurgitating some rote prayer in your prayer life, but say, God, I have done this, and it was wrong, and God, I have hurt that person, and God, I have said this, and I've done that, and I've thought that. God, I ask that you forgive me of that. Here's what I found, that sin loses its power when it's exposed. 
It always does. And so in, unless you're going to really uh, confess and identify things in your life, you say, well, Pastor, I can't remember all the sin that I've done. Well, I can't either. But I ask God, God, show me the areas in my life that there's sin. And I'll tell you, that's one of the dangerous prayers to pray is God, show me my sin because he'll show you your sin. But the more that you confess and the more that you expose your sin, the faster you can grow and the faster you can change and the deeper your humility and joy towards God comes and the more you hate sin. You know what I found? The closer you get to God, the more sin you see in your life. The further you get from God, the less sin you see in your life. It's kind of like a mirror. From a distance, you look hot. From a distance, you look hot. Up close, you're not. Same is true with God. From a distance from God, you don't feel like you're that bad, but when you get close to God, you say, oh, Lord, help me. Confess. And here's the good news. He is faithful. He is faithful to us when we're not faithful to him. Listen, when we know that we are loved and accepted in spite of our sins, that makes it easier to admit our falls and our flaws. Our faults and our flaws. He is faithful. Listen, he's not going to run out on you. He says, come to me. He says, if you confess your sins, he says, come to me. Don't run from me. Come to me. You always get in trouble when you try to cover it up. Come to me. I'm faithful. But he's also just. At the cross, God justly dealt with your sins. Jesus paid for our debt without destroying us for eternity. So when you and I confess, we can trust that God will forgive because he will not deny us based on what Jesus has earned for us. That's good. He will not deny us because what Jesus has already earned for us. He earned at the cross our forgiveness. And for God to not forgive you would be unjust because he's already paid for it. So we come to him and we confess we say, God, I'm not going to shift blame to them. I'm not going to try to cover it up. I'm not going to live in self-pity. God, I want you to forgive me because I hate this sin. I hate what this sin is doing. You know, one of the things that I hate is cancer. Does anybody hate cancer? I hate cancer. You know why I hate cancer? Because it what it has done to the people I love. My uncle, Uncle Tony, had stage 4, grade 4 glioblastoma brain tumor in his head. Took a man that was very strong, a master chief in the United States Navy. Very strong man. And he, he was just a, the shell of the man that he was when he died. And I hate it. But you know, as, as I found in my life, the reason I hate it is because of what it does to the person. We need to see sin as cancer. As much as you hate cancer, you should hate sin. Because I found that as we love God more, we learn to hate our sin because of what it does and how it offends God. And the same is true in your personal life and with other people. That when you start seeing that you're not the victim, but they are, it changes you. When you stop blaming others for your problems and stop feeling sorry for yourself and you see how sin hurts the people that you love and you ask God to forgive you and you ask him to stop it, it changes you. I want to just tell you this morning, and, and I, we're, I've got a few more minutes and then we'll end this thing and we'll all hopefully be down here at the altar. But you have to understand that sin hides 
and it lies to you. And it tells you that it's vict- that, that if you do it, it's, there's no victims. But there's always a victim to your sin. And if you ever want to stop it, you've got to learn to hate it. And the only way you're going to learn to hate it is you have to learn to love God more. Because when you love somebody, you hate it when they're hurting. God does not want you to sin. It hurts your relationship with Him. So you come and you ask for forgiveness. And here's the good news. You don't have to get saved a hundred times. You get saved once. You trust God to forgive you. He forgives you of all your sins. The reason why we pray forgive us, even after we're saved, is because we want to be in a right relationship with God. Have any of you ever gotten a fight with your spouse? Oh, none of you. (laughs) Come teach me your ways, wise one. But have you ever said anything bad to your wife or bad to your husband? And you ask them to forgive you. It's because you want that, that shalom to be restored in the home. Same thing with your walk with God. Let me end with this. And this is where it actually gets worse. And I have a few minutes, so we're good. We're good on time. If I ended it there, it would be okay. But I want you to see something that Jesus says in this. He doesn't just say, forgive us our debts and then move on, does he? He says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This is the mercy that we should extend. The phrase here has caused a lot of confusion, right? Has it confused anybody else in the room? Say amen. What I want you to learn, and we don't have time to go into every. I wish I had like 17 hours, but you don't. So... Jesus here is not saying this. He is not saying that we earn God's forgiveness through forgiving other people. That is found all throughout Scripture. You do not earn God's forgiveness, period. It's not earned. It's given, right? And it's given freely. It's not a reward. God doesn't forgive you because you're a good person. It's not, that's, that, that would be counterintuitive to the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the, re- of the entire Bible. Forgiveness is given, it's not earned. So Jesus here is not saying that you are forgiven because you forgive. But he's saying that we are to forgive, that we are forgiven as we forgive. Now, again, there's a lot of confusion with that, and I wish I had more, maybe more time to talk about this, but I just want to boil it down to this, and then we can unpack this. You can send me an email or whatever, and we'll talk more about it. Jesus is not teaching that we are forgiven because we forgive, but rather we forgive because we're forgiven. That's what I want you to leave here with. Now, we, you may say, Pastor, i got 10,000 other questions. Fine, email them to me. God's grace should fundamentally change you and I so that we forgive other people. The ground of our forgiveness is never based on our works, but our willingness to forgive is evidence that we receive forgiveness. So, we should aspire to forgive others as God has forgiven us. How has God forgiven you? Here's how he's forgiven you. He's forgiven you freely, not made. He didn't, you don't make him forgive you. He's forgiven you fully, not partial. And he's forgiven you forever, not remembered. If you come to God and he forgives you, he's forgiven you freely. You can't make him. 
Fully, it's not partial, it's total. And forever, it's not remembered. Now, some people say God forgives and then he forgets. Here's the thing about that. It's not that, it's, that our sin is no longer in his memory. It's not that God has selective amnesia. God is omniscient. And that means that God knows everything, period. But when it says that God forgets our sins, here's what he says. That it's no longer in his books. That it's, there's no longer a death that stands against me. Then when he looks at my name, he doesn't see a death there. He never reminds me of it again, and nor does he ever hold it against me. He doesn't bring it up again. Listen, that's what it means to be forgiven. And, and think about this thought. No one will ever sin against you more than you've sinned against God. And if God can forgive you of the greatest offenses against him, then why can't you be willing to forgive others? That's what Jesus is getting at. Even if you read verses 14 and 15, which we didn't have time to read. And here's the thought. I should be gracious towards others as God has been gracious to me. So if someone acknowledges their guilt and repents, I should be willing to forgive. Now, some of you say, what if they don't apologize? What if they don't repent? Should I forgive them? Here's my answer. Yes. Why? Because that's what Jesus did on the cross. What did Jesus say in one of his sayings? He said, Father, for forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgiveness does not lessen the offense, nor does it lessen the value of the victim. Here's what forgiveness does. It releases you. Just because you forgive doesn't mean that there aren't consequences for that person. Just because you forgive doesn't mean that you have to trust them. Just because you forgive doesn't mean that you have to be best friends again. But listen, when you forgive them, you set them free. But more importantly, you set yourself free from the bondage of bitterness. Unforgiveness is taking poison and expecting someone else to die for it. We forgive others because we've been forgiven by God. And I want to end with this. We need to forgive others even if we don't feel like it. If you wait for your feelings to change towards a person so that you feel like forgiving them, here's what I found. You never will. You never will. What I found is that feelings follow actions. You may not feel like forgiving, but when you start forgiving that person, it will change how you feel. Oh, I could preach another sermon on that, and maybe I will another day. I'll end with this. Corey Ten Boone, I was at her house in Harlem in the Netherlands. You've heard of Corey Ten Boone? She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. In her, in her early 50s, she was hiding Jews in Polish national, I mean, in, in nationals who were fighting against Nazi Germany. And finally, she was discovered. She'd, she'd saved dozens and dozens of people. And she was in a, she was captured, and, and there's a long story to this, but she was put into a concentration camp in Ravensbrück. When she was arrested, her dad was arrested, her sister was arrested, there were a lot of other family members were arrested. Her dad died while they, while, while they were holding him in a holding cell. He died of pneumonia just three days or four days after his arrest. She was there. Her sister was there. Her sister died because of the guards. She was humiliated. She was raped. She was tortured. She was abused. She was starved. But somehow, by the grace of God, she survived. She was a Christian. She survived. She survived it. In 1967, she was out. She was a, God used her story to go around the country to share the love and grace and forgiveness and mercy of God. 
and, and just this pure strength of this woman. And she went in and she, she shared this. It was in Germany. She shared, um, isn't that ironic? She shared in Germany about the love and forgiveness of God. And, and when she was done sharing about her story, a guy came up to her. And, and you know where this story is going if you've probably heard it before. But this guy was one of the guards at Ravensburg. This is one of the guards that humiliated her, that tur- tortured her, that starved her, that abused her. And he came up to her after the thing was over and he said, I've become a Christian. And then he extended his hand out to her and he says, do you forgive me? You think about that. Here's what she said. She said, I had to take the man's hand. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. I told myself, I can lift my hand. I can do that much. Jesus, you supply the feeling. And as I reached out my hand, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulders and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all of my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands and the former guard and the former prisoner. And she said, I've never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Listen, man is never more like God when he forgives because God is never more like God when He forgives. So here's how I want to end this sermon. Real simple. Who do you need to forgive this morning? Who do you need to forgive? Right now, in your mind, you can think of somebody. You say, well, they've never apologized to me. You don't have to. It's not, your forgiveness of them doesn't depend on anything they do. Forgiveness sets two people free, and one of them is you. Who do you need to forgive this morning? You say, well, I can't forgive them. Then I want to ask you, are you truly been forgiven by God? Because if you struggle to forgive them, I'm not saying it's just a once in a lifetime, you just do it right now. It may be a process. You may say, God, I want to forgive them. I'm struggling to forgive them. God, maybe just today, help me start the process of forgiving them. Maybe some of you just need to forgive. Maybe some husbands and wives here, you need to forgive each other. Maybe some, maybe some friends and neighbors, you need to forgive each other. Who do you need to forgive? And let me ask you this, this last one. What do you need to be forgiven of? What are you doing in your life that's offending God? This morning, I want to give you an opportunity. And I don't care what time it is. And I don't care where we got to go next. If God's dealing with you, don't let, him, don't, don't let, it, don't let it stop. You, you do whatever He wants you to do. If you need to be forgiven, if you need to be saved this morning, if you need to give Him your life and surrender your life to Him, do it today. Do it today. Do it today. This morning I heard a little story. Pastor John's granddaughter, young girl, back of the car after an upward basketball game on Saturday, mumbling. They ask, What's going on with you? She looks up. She said, I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. She said, You know what, Daddy? I'm going to sin. Or, Granddaddy, I'm going to sin. But I can come to Him again and again and again. This morning, wherever you are, whoever you are, you can come again and again and again. Thank you for listening to the Central Sanford Podcast. For more information or how to take your next step, 
Visit us online at centralsanford.net.